Hello, and welcome to Storytime for Grown-Ups. I'm Faith Moore, and this season we're reading Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Each episode, I'll read one chapter from the book, pausing from time to time to give brief explanations so it's easier to follow along. It's like an audiobook with built-in notes. So brew a pot of tea, find a cozy chair, and settle in. It's story time. Hi there, and welcome back. I am so happy to be with you again today. And I'm very excited today because my husband surprised me with a Thornfield sweatshirt. So I now have a, a sweatshirt that says Thornfield established 1847, which is when Jane Eyre was written. And it has a sort of cameo head picture of Jane Eyre on it. I'll post a picture on X um, if you're following me there at Faith K. Moore. And I'll show you my new sweatshirt, which I'm very excited about. And it's making me think even more that we do need a merch store. And I'm working on it. I'm looking into different options for where the best place to do that would be. So if you have ideas for things that you would like to see in a Storytime for Grown Ups merch store, then please send them my way. Go to my website, faithkmore.com and click on contact. And that's that's how you can contact me in general. But also if you have ideas for merchandise that you would like to see in a merch store for Storytime for Grown Ups, send those my way because my new Thornfield sweatshirt is really making me feel like we need to have we need to have a store of our own. Okay, this is episode 15 of Storytime for Grown Ups. We're going to be reading chapter 15 of Jane Eyre with a few notes along the way. Welcome to all new listeners. I know we are getting new listeners every day. This show is growing and I am so grateful for everything that you are doing to help it grow. If this is your very first time with Jane Eyre and you don't know the story at all, then it's a good idea to pause this episode here and go back to episode one because we are reading the book Jane Eyre chapter by chapter with a few notes along the way. So you'll be kind of confused if you try to jump in at chapter 15. If you're new and you do know Jane Eyre and you've read it before and you know the plot and you just want to jump right in with a bunch of other people who are reading the book together, then please stay and join us. And if you're going back to chapter one, don't worry, we'll still be here on chapter 15 when you catch up. Hello to all the people who have been binging along the way. I know there's a lot of you and have caught up with us. Welcome. We're so glad to have you along for the ride. And of course, hello and welcome to everyone who has been here since the very beginning. I'm so glad to have all of you here. Thank you, as always, for your reviews, your five-star ratings. Thank you for telling your friends. Thank you for posting on social media. I'm seeing those things and I'm seeing the way that it's helping the show to grow. So thank you. If you haven't already, please make sure that you are subscribing or following wherever you're listening. And if you are enjoying the show and you haven't done this yet, please just tap those five stars. And if you have a couple extra minutes, leave a review too. That really helps. This past week, I was on the Buffnagel podcast, which was really fun. We had a great conversation that included Storytime for Grownups, but also my books, Saving Cinderella and Christmas Carol. And we talked about all of those things. I will put a link to that show in the show notes of this episode so that you can check it out. There are, I don't think there's really any spoilers, maybe some very, very mild spoilers for Jane Eyre. So if you know nothing about the book, maybe save it for later, but otherwise you should be good to listen to that if you're interested. So that's the link to that is in the show notes. And as I mentioned, if you would like to get in touch with me, either to ask a question, which would be amazing, 
amazing or to comment or just to say hello, you can find me at faithkmore.com, which is my website. You can click on contact and that goes straight to my email. You can also submit questions or say hello on X. I'm at faithkmore and you can just, you can make a post where you tag me or you can DM me or you can reply to one of the posts that I do about the show. And those are all great ways to contact me. I love to hear from you, particularly when you have questions or comments about the chapter, because I love to feature those on our fun little deep dives that we do here at the beginning of the show. And this time I pretty understandably got a lot of questions and thoughts and comments about Mr. Rochester. And so I think it's important that we talk a little bit about Mr. Rochester today. I'm going to share a few of the questions and comments or little snippets of them that I got this time as a way to discuss something that I would like to bring up about Mr. Rochester. These comments also kind of bring it up and I want to tie them all together and talk about him more generally under a specific topic. So before I do that, let's just recap what happened in chapter 14 because I think it will help us to talk about Mr. Rochester going forward. Where we left off, Jane was called again into Mr. Rochester's presence, and they had a conversation in which Mr. Rochester sort of became much more open and shared about his life with Jane, but also was talking about things that confused Jane and confused us, I think. He he was saying that he had somehow made a mistake in his life, or at least that he was thrust into some situation in his youth that he is now stuck in and can't get out of, and it causes him horrible pain, and it has made him kind of sin and corrupted him. But now he wants to change, and he has decided to change. He welcomed in this he sort of personified it as an angel and Jane worried that it was a demon. He welcomed in some idea for his future pleasure, his future change that he has resolved to do. And Jane has no idea what he's talking about or what it is, but it seems like she feels like perhaps he's going about this all wrong. He seems to be saying that he's going to make his own rules for life. And Jane feels like, no, there are rules already. God has created rules for us. And so you can't change them. But she doesn't actually know what it is that he's resolving to do. So she doesn't really know what to say. And then at the end, we learned that Mr. Rochester and Adele's mother, Celine Verens, had been involved in some way and that Mr. Rochester would eventually explain it to her, but he didn't at that particular point and off she went to bed. Okay, so we have now had basically two encounters, not counting the time when Mr. Rochester and Jane first met and he fell off his horse, but two kind of conversations between Jane and Mr. Rochester and questions have and comments have been coming in since then. So here's just a sort of sampling of the kinds of things that I've been hearing from you about Mr. Rochester since basically since chapter 13, when they first had their, their first encounter and also chapter 14, when they had their second conversation that I was just talking about in the recap. So from Patty Warren, Patty writes, um, did the discourse between Jane and Mr. Rochester in chapter 13 feel like flirting to you? Maybe it was just me. Archer via X wrote, we mentioned a few episodes back, Jane is sort of outside the master servant hierarchy as a governess. How many norms is Mr. Rochester breaking? And Jenny wrote, the contrasts between Jane and Rochester make it interesting, but then there are the similarities between Mr. Rochester and Jane, both having troubled pasts, his a secret for now, and hers completely brought forward. So I got more, but I think this 
kind of gives you a sense of people kind of wondering who is this Mr. Rochester and what is going on between him and Jane and why does he talk the way that he does? Why does he act the way he does? What is the secret that's in his past that he keeps alluding to but not saying anything about and being very confusing about, right? And all of this leads me to want to bring up the topic of Byronic heroes. So we're going to just talk about Byronic heroes for a minute and then we'll get into chapter 15. So Mr. Rochester is an example of a character trope, a kind of character that was popular at the time and is actually still hugely popular today. And this is called the Byronic hero. Okay, so Byronic heroes are named after a real person named Lord Byron. His full name was George Gordon Byron, and he lived from 1788 to 1824. So he died before Jane Eyre was written or published, but he was a poet and he wrote stories that included this kind of character. Then they're named after him, Byronic heroes, and they were generally regarded to be based on Lord Byron himself. So they were fictional, but but they seemed to mirror the life of Lord Byron. So what is it? A Byronic hero is a male fictional character who is brooding, moody, and haunted by something that happened in his past. So they're often highly intelligent, they're often emotionally astute, and they're struggling with whether to be good or bad. So whether to reform or to give in to their vices. So as we've learned so far, Rochester has something in his past, something to do with whatever his father and brother did to him that haunts him. And it has caused him to live a different kind of life than the one he'd hoped, a kind of you know, in his mind, he seems to be saying a sort of more debauched life than the life that he had wanted to live. In chapter 14, here's just, I'm just going to quote the past chapter, chapter 14, to kind of illustrate what I'm talking about. He says, when I was as old as you, I was a feeling fellow enough, partial to the unfledged, unfostered, and unlucky, but fortune has knocked me about since. She has even kneaded me with her knuckles, and now I flatter myself that I am hard and tough as an India rubber ball, pervious though, through a chink or two still, and with one sentient point in the middle of the lump. Yes, does that leave hope for me? And Jane says, hope of what, sir? And he says, of my final retransformation from India rubber back to flesh, right? So he's, so Rochester at this point is being set up by Bronte as a pretty textbook Byronic hero. He is someone who is dark, moody, brusque, with some kind of thing in his past that has made him live a different kind of life than he meant to live, a kind of worse life, a more corrupt life than he meant to live, and he's asking if he can change. And that's kind of the question of Byronic heroes. Can they change? So he's asking Jane if he can change back from India rubber, this kind of hard man, back into flesh. It's kind of an interesting character trope that is still very popular because the Byronic hero is the predecessor of the bad boy, which is still an incredibly popular character today. Think Batman or Wolverine. Han Solo, the Phantom of the Opera, the Beast in Beauty and the Beast, etc., etc. This kind of dark, brooding, bad boy character who may or be, may be good, may be bad, we don't know. And often the question with a Byronic hero is, what is the secret of their past and can they change? And these are questions that are becoming very pertinent now for Mr. Rochester and will become important going forward. So that's just a very quick deep dive into 
Byronic heroes. And I think that that is an important kind of touchstone for us with Mr. Rochester. And it kind of helps to draw together all of the things that are now bubbling up for people on the topic of Mr. Rochester and who he is. So let's find out more about Mr. Rochester and check back in with Jane as we move into the next chapter. So don't forget that if you would like to ask a question or submit a comment and perhaps be featured in one of these episodes, go to my website, faithkmore.com and click on contact, or you can find me on X at faithkmore, or there's a link in the show notes to contact me. I love to hear from you. Don't worry if we've moved on from chapter 15. I get questions all the time that are still relevant and we can still talk about the things that are on your mind. So please do get those questions and comments and I love to receive them. All right. Let's get started with Chapter 15 of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. It's story time. Chapter 15. Mr. Rochester did, on a future occasion, explain it. It was one afternoon when he chanced to meet me and Adele in the grounds, and while she played with Pilot and her shuttlecock, just her toy, he asked me to walk up and down a long beach avenue within sight of her beach like the kind of trees, so they're walking down a path that is bordered on either side by beech trees. He then said that she was the daughter of a French opera dancer, Céline Varence. So opera ballet was a form of entertainment that was popular in France, so it combined elements of opera and ballet, and so Adele's mother was a dancer in this type of entertainment, which would have been, so she would have been sort of lower class and not on the same social level as Mr. Rochester towards whom he had once cherished what he called a grand passion. This passion Céline had professed to return with even superior ardor. He thought himself her idol, ugly as he was. He believed, as he said, that she preferred his taille d'athlète, so his athletic build, to the elegance of the Apollo Belvedere. And, Messer, so much was I flattered by this preference of the Gallic sylph for her British gnome that I installed her in a hotel, gave her a complete establishment of servants, a carriage, cashmeres, diamonds, dentelles, etc. In short, I began the process of ruining myself in the received style like any other spoonie. Spoonie is someone who is sentimentally and foolishly amorous. So he fell for this dancer and shelled out vast amounts of money to keep her in great state with everything so that she could, so she could have whatever she wanted. I had not, it seems, the originality to chalk out a new road to shame and destruction, but trode the old track with stupid exactness not to deviate an inch from the beaten center. I had, as I deserved to have, the fate of all other spoonies. Happening to call one evening when Celine did not expect me, I found her out. But it was a warm night, and I was tired with strolling through Paris, so I sat down in her boudoir, happy to breathe the air consecrated so lately by her presence. No, I exaggerate. I never thought there was any consecrating virtue about her. It was rather a sort of pastille perfume she had left, a scent of musk and amber, then an odor of sanctity. I was just beginning to stifle with the fumes of conservatory flowers and sprinkled essences when I bethought myself to open the window and step out onto the balcony. It was moonlight, and gaslight besides, and very still and serene. The balcony was furnished with a chair or two. I sat down and took out a cigar. I will take one out now, if you will excuse me. Here ensued a pause, filled up by the producing and lighting of a cigar. Having placed it to his lips and breathed a trail of Havana incense on the freezing and sunless air, he went on. I liked bonbons, too, in those days, Miss Eyre. He liked candy. And I was croquant. Overlook the barbarism. Croquant, chocolate comfits, 
So croquant means he was loudly crunching on these sweets. So he says, pardon the barbarism, because it's rather uncouth to be sitting there chomping noisily. And smoking alternately. Watching, meantime, the equipage that rolled along the fashionable street towards the neighboring opera house. When in an elegant close carriage, drawn by a beautiful pair of English horses, and distinctly seen in the brilliant city night, I recognized the voiture I had given Celine. A voiture is a car, so he sees Celine's carriage drawing up to the hotel. She was returning. Of course, my heart thumped with impatience against the iron rails I leant upon. The carriage stopped, as I had expected at the hotel door. My flame, that is the very word for an opera in Amarada, alighted. Though muffled in a cloak, an unnecessary encumbrance, by the by, on so warm a June evening, I knew her instantly by her little foot, seen peeping from the skirt of her dress, as she skipped from the carriage step. Bending over the balcony, I was about to murmur, Monange, my angel, in a tone, of course, which should be audible to the ear of love alone, when a figure jumped from the carriage after her, cloaked also, but that was a spurred heel which had rung on the pavement, and that was a hatted head, which now passed under the arched porte-cochere of the hotel. So the spur and the hat alert him to the fact that this is a man. You never felt jealousy, did you, Miss Eyre? Of course not. I need not ask you, because you never felt love. You have both sentiments yet to experience. Your soul sleeps. The shock is yet to be given which shall waken it. You think all existence lapses in as quiet a flow as that in which your youth has hitherto slid away. Floating on with closed eyes and muffled ears, you neither see the rocks bristling not far off in the bed of the flood, nor hear the breakers boil at their base. But I tell you, and you may mark my words, you will come some day to a craggy pass in the channel, where the whole of life's stream will be broken up into whirl and tumult, foam and noise. Either you will be dashed to atoms on crag points, or lifted up and borne on by some master wave into a calmer current, as I am now. I like this day. I like that sky of steel. I like the sternness and stillness of the world under this frost. I like Thornfield. Its antiquity, its retirement, its old crow trees and thorn trees, its gray facade and lines of dark windows reflecting that metal welkin. Welkin is sky. And yet, how long have I abhorred the very thought of it, shunned it like a great plague house? How I do still abhor... He ground his teeth and was silent. He arrested his step and struck his boot against the hard ground. Some hated thought seemed to have him in its grip, and to hold him so tightly that he could not advance. We were ascending the avenue when he thus paused. The hall was before us. Lifting his eye to the battlements, he cast over them a glare such as I never saw before or since. Pain, shame, ire, impatience, disgust, detestation seemed momentarily to hold a quivering conflict in the large pupil dilating under his even brow. Wild was the wrestle which should be paramount. But another feeling rose and triumphed, something hard and cynical, self-willed and resolute. It settled his passion and petrified his countenance. So some intense and overwhelming emotion seized Mr. Rochester for a moment, but he mastered it, and he brought himself back to his hard and cynical self. He went on. During the moment I was silent, Miss Eyre, I was arranging a point with my destiny. She stood there. So she is his destiny. So he's saying that while he was silent, he was talking to his destiny. She stood there, by that beech trunk. A hag, like one of those who appeared to Macbeth on the heath of forests. You like Thornfield, she said, lifting her finger, and then she wrote in the air a memento, 
which ran in lurid hieroglyphics all along the house front between the upper and lower row of windows. Like it if you can. Like it if you dare. I will like it, said I. I dare like it. And, he subjoined moodily, I will keep my word. I will break obstacles to happiness, to goodness. Yes, goodness. I wish to be a better man than I have been, than I am. As Job's Leviathan broke the spear, the dart, and the Hebergeon, hindrances which others count as iron brass, I will esteem but straw and rotten wood. As he's saying to get to his happiness, he will break through obstacles that other people would see as totally unbreakable. Adele here ran before him with her shuttlecock. Away, he cried harshly. Keep it a distance, child, or go into Sophie. Continuing then to pursue his walk in silence, I ventured to recall him to the point whence he had abruptly diverged. Did you leave the balcony, sir? I asked, when Mademoiselle Varens entered. I almost expected a rebuff for this hardly well-timed question, but on the contrary, waking out of his scowling abstraction, he turned his eyes towards me, and the shade seemed to clear off his brow. Oh, I had forgotten Celine. Well, to resume. When I saw my charmer thus come in, accompanied by her cavalier, I seemed to hear a hiss, and the green snake of jealousy, rising on undulating coils from the moonlit balcony, glided within my waistcoat, and ate its way in two minutes to my heart's core. Strange, he exclaimed, suddenly starting again from the point, strange that I should choose you for the confidant of all this, young lady, passing strange that you should listen to me quietly as if it were the most usual thing in the world for a man like me to tell stories of his opera mistress to a quaint, inexperienced girl like you. But the last singularity explains the first, as I intimated once before. You, with your gravity, considerateness, and caution, were made to be the recipient of secrets. Besides, I know what sort of a mind I have placed in communication with my own. I know it is one not liable to take infection. It is a peculiar mind. It is a unique one. Happily, I do not mean to harm it, but if I did, it would not take harm from me. The more you and I converse, the better, for while I cannot blight you, you may refresh me. You're saying even though he's telling her a tale of debauchery, he knows she has a strong moral code and he won't corrupt her. In fact, she might rub off on him and make him less corrupt. After this digression, he proceeded. I remained in the balcony. They will come to her boudoir, no doubt, thought I. Let me prepare an ambush. So, Putting my hand in through the open window, I drew the curtain over it, leaving only an opening through which I could take observations. Then I closed the casement, all but a chink just wide enough to furnish an outlet to lovers' whispered vows. Then I stole back to my chair, and as I resumed it, the pair came in. So he's out on the balcony looking back in through to the room through a small gap in the curtains. My eye was quickly at the aperture. Celine's chambermaid entered, lit a lamp, left it on the table, and withdrew. The couple were thus revealed to me clearly. Both removed their cloaks, and there was the Varens, shining in satin and jewels. My gifts, of course. And there was her companion in an officer's uniform. And I knew him for a young roué of a vicomte, a brainless and vicious youth whom I had sometimes met in society and had never thought of hating because I despised him so absolutely. On recognizing him, the fang of the snake jealousy was instantly broken because at the same moment my love for Celine sank under an extinguisher. A woman who could betray me for such a rival was not worth contending for. She deserved only scorn, less, however, than I, who had been her dupe. So because she's chosen to cheat on him with someone he finds repulsive, he suddenly doesn't love her anymore. 
he feels scorn for her, but he feels even more scorn for himself because he was taken in by her. They began to talk. Their conversation eased me completely. Frivolous, mercenary, heartless, and senseless. It was rather calculated to weary than enrage a listener. A card of mine lay on the table. Okay, back then it was the custom to leave a card with your name on it at someone's house if you came to visit them, and they weren't there. So this is a called a, a calling card. This way people would know who'd been to visit while they were gone, and then they could go and pay them a visit in return. So Celine sees Mr. Rochester's calling card on the table. This being perceived brought my name under discussion. Neither of them possessed energy or wit to belabor me soundly, but they insulted me as coarsely as they could in their little way. Especially Celine, who even waxed rather brilliant on my personal defects. Deformities, she termed them. Now it had been her custom to launch out into fervent admiration of what she called my beauté mal, her, his male beauty, wherein she differed diametrically from you, who told me point-blank at the second interview that you did not think me handsome. The contrast struck me at the time, and Adele here came running up again. Monsieur John has just been to say that your agent has called and wishes to see you. Ah, in that case, I must abridge. So he has to go now, so he's going to just get to the point of the story. Opening the window, I walked in upon them, liberated Celine from my protection, gave her notice to vacate her hotel, offered her a purse for immediate exigencies, disregarded screams, hysterics, prayers, protestations, convulsions, made an appointment with the Vicomte for a meeting at the Bois de Boulogne. Next morning, I had the pleasure of encountering him, left a bullet in one of his poor etoileted arms, feeble as the wing of a chicken in the pip, and then thought I had done with the whole crew. But unluckily, the Varens, six months before, had given me this fillet Adele, who, she affirmed, was my daughter. And perhaps she may be, though I see no proofs of such grim paternity written in her countenance. Pilot is more like me than she. Some years after I had broken with the mother, she abandoned her child and ran away to Italy with a musician or singer. I acknowledge no natural claim on Adele's part to be supported by me, nor do I now acknowledge any, for I am not her father. But hearing that she was quite destitute, I even took the poor thing out of the slime and mud of Paris and transplanted it here to grow up clean in the wholesome soil of an English country garden. Mrs. Fairfax found you to train it. But now you know that it is the illegitimate offspring of a French opera girl, you will perhaps think differently of your post and protege. You will be coming to me some day with notice that you have found another place, that you beg me to look out for a new governess, etc. Eh? So Celine told Mr. Rochester that Adele is his daughter, but he doesn't think she is. But he's raising her anyway because he felt like it's the right thing to do. And he's saying that now that Jane knows that Adele is illegitimate and the daughter of a dancer, maybe she's not going to want to be her governess anymore. No, Adele is not answerable for either her mother's faults or yours. I have a regard for her. And now that I know she is, in a sense, parentless, forsaken by her mother and disowned by you, sir, I shall cling closer to her than before. How could I possibly prefer the spoiled pet of a wealthy family, who would hate her governess as a nuisance, to a lonely little orphan, who leans towards her as a friend? Oh, that is the light in which you view it. Well, I must go in now, and you too. It darkens. But I stayed out a few minutes longer with Adele and Pilot, ran a race with her and played a game of battledore and shuttlecock. When we went in and I had removed her bonnet and coat, I took her on my knee, kept her there an hour, allowing her to prattle as she liked not rebuking even some little freedoms and trivialities into which she was apt to stray when much noticed, and which betrayed her in a superficiality of character, inherited probably from her mother, hardly congenial to an English mind. Still, she had her merits, and I was disposed to appreciate all that was good in her to the utmost. I sought in her countenance and features a likeness to Mr. Rochester, but found none. 
No trait, no turn of expression announced relationship. It was a pity. If she could but have been proved to resemble him, he would have thought more of her. It was not till after I had withdrawn to my own chamber for the night that I steadily reviewed the tale Mr. Rochester had told me. As he had said, there was probably nothing at all extraordinary in the substance of the narrative itself. A wealthy Englishman's passion for a French dancer and her treachery to him were everyday matters enough, no doubt, in society. But there was something decidedly strange in the paroxysm of emotion which had suddenly seized him when he was in the act of expressing the present contentment of his mood and his newly revived pleasure in the old hall and its environs. I meditated wonderingly on this incident, but gradually quitting it, as I found it for the present inexplicable, I turned to the consideration of my master's manner to myself. The confidence he had thought fit to repose in me seemed a tribute to my discretion. I regarded and accepted it as such. His deportment had now for some weeks been more uniform towards me than at first. I never seemed in his way. He did not take fits of chilling hotter. When he met me unexpectedly, the encounter seemed welcome. He had always a word and sometimes a smile for me. When summoned by formal invitation to his presence, I was honored by a cordiality of reception that made me feel I really possessed the power to amuse him, and that these evening conferences were sought as much for his pleasure as for my benefit. I, indeed, talked comparatively little, but I heard him talk with relish. It was his nature to be communicative. He liked to open to a mind unacquainted with the world glimpses of its scenes and ways. I do not mean its corrupt scenes and wicked ways, but such as derived their interest from the great scale on which they were acted, the strange novelty by which they were characterized. And I had a keen delight in receiving the new ideas he offered, in imagining the new pictures he portrayed, and following him in thought through the new regions he disclosed, never startled or troubled by one noxious illusion. The ease of his manner freed me from painful restraint. The friendly frankness, as correct as cordial, with which he treated me, drew me to him. I felt at times as if he were my relation rather than my master. Yet he was imperious sometimes still, but I did not mind that. I saw it was his way. So happy, so gratified did I become with this new interest added to life that I ceased to pine after kindred. My thin crescent destiny seemed to enlarge. The banks of existence were filled up. My bodily health improved. I gathered flesh and strength. So she's finally found someone at Thornfield whose company she enjoys and whose intellect she feels is equal to or superior to her own. And was Mr. Rochester now ugly in my eyes? No, reader. Gratitude and many associations, all pleasurable and genial, made his face the object I best liked to see. His presence in a room was more cheering than the brightest fire. Yet I had not forgotten his faults. Indeed, I could not, for he brought them frequently before me. He was proud, sardonic, harsh to inferiority of every description. In my secret soul I knew that his great kindness to me was balanced by unjust severity to many others. He was moody, too, unaccountably so. I more than once, when sent for to read to him, found him sitting in his library alone, with his head bent on his folded arms, and when he looked up, a morose, almost a malignant scowl blackened his features. But I believed that his moodiness, his harshness, and his former faults of morality, I say former, for now he seemed corrected of them, had their source in some cruel cross of fate. I believed he was naturally a man of better tendencies, higher principles, and purer tastes than such as circumstances had developed, education instilled, or destiny encouraged. I thought there were excellent materials in him, 
though for the present they hung together somewhat spoiled and tangled. I cannot deny that I grieved for his grief, whatever that was, and would have given much to assuage it. Though I had now extinguished my candle and was laid down in bed, I could not sleep for thinking of his look when he paused in the avenue, and told how his destiny had risen up before him and dared him to be happy at Thornfield. Why not? I asked myself. What alienates him from the house? Will he leave it again soon? Mrs. Fairfax said he seldom stayed here longer than a fortnight at a time, and he has now been resident eight weeks. If he does go, the change will be doleful. Suppose he should be absent spring, summer, and autumn. How joyless sunshine and fine days will seem. I hardly know whether I had slept or not after this musing. At any rate, I started wide awake on hearing a vague murmur, peculiar and lugubrious. Lugubrious means sad and dismal, which sounded, I thought, just above me. I wished I had kept my candle burning. The night was drearily dark. My spirits were depressed. I rose and sat up in bed, listening. The sound was hushed. I tried again to sleep, but my heart beat anxiously. My inward tranquility was broken. The clock, far down in the hall, struck two. Just then it seemed my chamber door was touched, as if fingers had swept the panels and groping away along the dark gallery outside. I said, Who's there? Nothing answered. I was chilled with fear. All at once I remembered that it might be Pilate, who, when the kitchen door chanced to be left open, not unfrequently found his way up to the threshold of Mr. Rochester's chamber. I had seen him lying there myself in the mornings. The idea calmed me somewhat. I lay down. Silence composes the nerves. And as an unbroken hush now reigned again through the whole house, I began to feel the return of slumber. But it was not fated that I should sleep that night. A dream had scarcely approached my ear when it fled, affrighted, scared by a marrow-freezing incident enough. This was a demonic laugh, low, suppressed, and deep, uttered, as it seemed, at the very keyhole of my chamber door. The head of my bed was near the door, and I thought at first the goblin laugher stood at my bedside, or rather crouched by my pillow. But I rose, looked round, and could see nothing, while, as I still gazed, the unnatural sound was reiterated and I knew it came from behind the panels. So it's right outside the door. My first impulse was to rise and fasten the bolt. My next, again, to cry out, Who is there? Something gurgled and moaned. Ere long, steps retreated up the gallery towards the third-story staircase. A door had lately been made to shut in that staircase. I heard it open and close, and all was still. Was that Grace Poole? And is she possessed with a devil? thought I. Impossible now to remain longer by myself. I must go to Mrs. Fairfax. I hurried on my frock and shawl. I withdrew the bolt and opened the door with a trembling hand. There was a candle burning just outside and on the matting in the gallery. I was surprised at this circumstance, but still more was I amazed to perceive the air quite dim, as if filled with smoke, and while looking to the right hand and left to find whence these blue wreaths issued, I became further aware of a strong smell of burning. Something creaked. It was a door ajar, and that door was Mr. Rochester's, and the smoke rushed in a cloud from thence. I thought no more of Mrs. Fairfax. I thought no more of Grace Poole or the laugh. In an instant, I was within the chamber. 
tongues of flame darted round the bed. The curtains were on fire. In the midst of blaze and vapor, Mr. Rochester lay stretched motionless in deep sleep. Wake, wake, I cried. I shook him, but he only murmured and turned. The smoke had stupefied him. Not a moment could be lost. The very sheets were kindling. I rushed to his basin and ewer. Fortunately, one was wide and the other deep, and both were filled with water. I heaved them up. They luged the bed and its occupant, flew back to my own room, brought my own water jug, baptized the couch afresh, and, by God's aid, succeeded in extinguishing the flames which were devouring it. The hiss of the quenched element, the breakage of a pitcher which I flung from my hand when I had emptied it, and, above all, the splash of the shower bath I had liberally bestowed roused Mr. Rochester at last. Though it was now dark, I knew he was awake, because I heard him fulminating strange anathemas at finding himself lying in a pool of water. "'Is there a flood?' he cried. "'No, sir,' I answered. "'But there has been a fire. Get up, do. You are quenched now. I will fetch you a candle.' "'In the name of all the elves in Christendom, is that Jane Eyre?' he demanded. "'What have you done with me, witch, sorceress? Who is in the room besides you? Have you plotted to drown me?' I will fetch you a candle, sir, and in heaven's name get up. Somebody has plotted something. You cannot too soon find out who and what it is. There, I am up now. But at your peril you fetch a candle yet. Wait two minutes till I get into some dry garments, if any dry there be. Yes, here is my dressing gown. Now run. I did run. I brought the candle which still remained in the gallery. He took it from my hand, held it up, and surveyed the bed, all blackened and scorched, the sheets drenched, the carpet round swimming in water. What is it? And who did it? He asked. I briefly related to him what had transpired. The strange laugh I had heard in the gallery, the step ascending to the third story, the smoke, the smell of fire which had conducted me to his room, in what state I had found matters there, and how I had deluged him with all the water I could lay hands on. He listened very gravely. His face, as I went on, expressed more concern than astonishment. He did not immediately speak when I had concluded. "'Shall I call Mrs. Fairfax?' I asked. "'Mrs. Fairfax? No. What the deuce would you call her for? What can she do? Let her sleep unmolested.' "'Then I will fetch Leah and wake John and his wife.' "'Not at all. Just be still. You have a shawl on? If you are not warm enough, you may take my cloak yonder. Wrap it about you and sit down in the armchair. There. I, I will put it on you. Now place your feet on the stool to keep them out of the wet.' I'm going to leave you for a few minutes. I shall take the candle. Remain where you are till I return, but as still as a mouse, I must pay a visit to the second story. Don't move, remember, or call anyone. He went. I watched the light withdraw. He passed up the gallery very softly, unclosed the staircase door with as little noise as possible, shut it after him, and the very last ray vanished. I was left in total darkness. I listened for some noise, but heard nothing. A very long time elapsed. I grew weary. It was cold, in spite of the cloak. And then I did not see the use of staying, as I was not to rouse the house. I was on the point of risking Mr. Rochester's displeasure by disobeying his orders, when the light once more gleamed dimly on the gallery wall, and I heard his unshod feet tread the matting. I hope it is he, thought I, and not something worse. He re-entered pale and very gloomy. I have found it all out, said he, setting his candle down on the washstand. It is as I thought. How, sir? He made no reply, but stood with his arms folded, looking at the ground. 
At the end of a few minutes, he inquired in rather a peculiar tone, I forget whether you said you saw anything when you opened your chamber door. No, sir, only the candlestick on the ground. But you heard an odd laugh. You have heard that laugh before, I should think, or something like it. Yes, sir. There is a woman who sews here called Grace Poole. She laughs in that way. She's a singular person. Just so. Grace Poole, you have guessed it. She is, as you say, singular. Very. Well, I shall reflect on the subject. Meantime, I am glad that you are the only person besides myself acquainted with the precise details of tonight's incident. You are no talking fool. Say nothing about it. I will account for this state of affairs. Pointing to the bed. And now, return to your own room. I shall do very well on the sofa in the library for the rest of the night. It is near four. In two hours, the servants will be up. Good night, then, sir, said I, departing. He seemed surprised, very inconsistently so, as he had just told me to go. What? he exclaimed. Are you quitting me already and in that way? You said I might go, sir. But not without taking leave, not without a word or two of acknowledgement and goodwill, not, in short, in that brief, dry fashion. Why, you have saved my life, snatched me from a horrible, excruciating death, and you walk past me as if we were mutual strangers. At least shake hands. He held out his hand. I gave him mine. He took it first in one, then in both of his own. You have saved my life. I have a pleasure in owing you so immense a debt. I cannot say more. Nothing else that has being would have been tolerable to me in the character of creditor for such an obligation. But you, it is different. I feel your benefits no burden, Jane. So if he owed his life to anyone else, he would hate it, but he doesn't mind owing it to her. He paused, gazed at me. Words almost visible trembled on his lips, but his voice was checked. Good night again, sir. There is no debt, benefit, burden, obligation in the case. I knew, he continued, you would do me good in some way, at some time. I saw it in your eyes when I first beheld you. Their expression and smile did not... Again he stopped. Did not... Strike delight to my very inmost heart so for nothing. People talk of natural sympathies. I have heard of good genie. There are grains of truth in the wildest fable. My cherished preserver. Good night. Strange energy was in his voice. Strange fire in his look. I am glad I happened to be awake, I said. And then I was going. What? You will go? I am cold, sir. Cold? Yes, and standing in a pool. Go then, Jane, go. But he still retained my hand, and I could not free it. I bethought myself of an expedient. I think I hear Mrs. Fairfax move, sir, said I. Well, leave me. He relaxed his fingers, and I was gone. I regained my couch, but never thought of sleep. Till morning dawned, I was tossed on a buoyant but unquiet sea, where billows of trouble rolled under surges of joy. I thought sometimes I saw beyond its wild waters a shore, sweet as the hills of Beulah. Beulah is from Pilgrim's Progress. It's an idyllic land. And now and then a freshening gale, wakened by hope, bore my spirit triumphantly towards the bourne. But I could not reach it, even in fancy. A counteracting breeze blew off land and continually drove me back. Remember Mr. Rochester used this metaphor about the waves and the water before when he was talking about love and heartbreak. Sense would resist delirium. Judgment would warn passion. Too feverish to rest, I rose as soon as day dawned. 
Thank you so much for listening. I'd love to know what you thought of the chapter. Is there anything you'd like me to clarify? Did something particularly interest you? Please go to my website, faithkmore.com, click on contact and send me your questions and thoughts. Or you can click on the link in the show notes to contact me. I'll feature one or two of your entries at the start of the next episode. Before I go, I'd like to ask a quick favor. This is an independent podcast. It's produced, recorded, and marketed by me. So I need your help. Please share this podcast with your friends. Post about it on social media. If you're studying literature at school, tell your teacher and your classmates about it. Talk about it in the break room at work. And if you could, please subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. I would really, really appreciate it. All right, everyone. Story time is over. To be continued. Thank you.